All right, how we doing? We doing good? Good. Everybody that is in the house in person, we are so, so incredibly grateful to be able to gather together with you. And then those online or watching in the family gathering, glad to gather with you as well. That's the beauty of technology. We have three ways that you can gather. And we've been now five weeks, I think, to gathering back together in person. And we've been doing things a little bit differently, you know, gathering times. And then we have family environments where parents can take their kids. And our goal is to get back into a little bit of a normal rhythm and have our normal Rev Kids programming in the next few weeks as well. But the biggest limiting factor for that right now is just being able to have enough team members because so many of our team members um, have other restrictions as far as you know, COVID is concerned, they can't come because of their jobs and things like that. Uh, and just getting back into the normal routine of that and being around kids and social distancing with kids and all that kind of stuff. So if you are one of our Rev Kids team members, then we have been in contact with you because our goal is to get that back up and running soon. But if you're interested in, in uh, joining a Rev Kids team, we would love to have you uh, as one of our team members as well, because it really is one of the best ministries that we have here uh, in our whole vision as a church applies to kids and students. Love Jesus, grow kids. Love Jesus, grow students. And so our students have been meeting for the last several weeks as well, and that's been going incredibly well. Uh, and so by God's grace and then us gathering together. So continue to pray as we do that, and we're navigating this crazy seasons that we're in, uh, but we're trying to do it with the most amount of wisdom and then trying to get back into our normal programming in the next few weeks as well. So if you have a Bible, open it up today to Genesis chapter 25 is where we're gonna be. We're gonna kind of pick up where we left off last week. And if you weren't here last week, or if you don't know anything about this series of messages that we've been in, we're looking at the story of Jacob in the Old Testament. And so especially if you're new and you don't know where Genesis is, it's the very first book in the Bible, all right? So it's the easiest one to find because it's right there at the beginning. But we'll have the verses on the screen as well. Looking at this story in Genesis chapter 32, where Jesus shows up and wrestles with Jacob. And we've been talking about this idea of welcoming the wrestle. Because God wants to wrestle with us, which may sound weird to us that God wants to get into a wrestling match with us, but, but, but God, lo God loves us so much that he's, he's willing to disrupt our way to change our ways. And that's the story. And then last week, we looked back into Jacob's history, his upbringing, his, his how he grew into the person he is from the family that he came from, because all of us need to understand that. All of us come from families, and, and since we were all born after Genesis chapter 3, we all come from families with dysfunction in them. And I made this point last week that I want to kind of recap again, because again, it kind of jumps us off where we're going to go today, is we're all drinking from wells that were dug from before. And the idea is every single one of us come from a family, and we're drinking out of the things that our parents dug, the, because we don't just pass down you know, descendants, we passed down decisions. We all grew up in environments and we learned how to do things. And some of those can be good and some of those can be dysfunctional or they can be bad. And the reason why we have to understand that is because the second point I made last week is that we're all digging wells now that our kids are going to drink from. Now, you may not have kids, but you're going to pass down to people. You're going to influence people. Or you may have kids, you may have grandkids. And maybe you like really thought last week, wow, I'm, I'm passing down some horrible decisions. Well, the good news is it's never too late to start digging new wells. It's never too late to start to apologize or to repent. That's what the Bible calls repentance. It's just agreeing, just confessing. Yes, I agree. That was wrong. And, and I want to dig by God's grace a new well. And so we're going to back up into Genesis 25 
I'm going to start with verse 27 and 28. That's where I ended last week, and then we'll get into how Jacob shows up in the world and why God had to wrestle him because of the type of dude he had grown into be. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time together, and then we'll jump into the text, all right? Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the fact that not only are you all-knowing, but you're all-loving, and that love motivates you to move. It motivates you to act, and God, so often in our lives, that means you show up and confront us. You show up and wrestle with us. You show up and deal with things in us in very loving ways, even though it doesn't feel like love. And as we open up your word today, God, I pray that you would show us how you need to do that and how you did that with Jacob and how who he was, if you let that continue on, that would actually be unloving. And so God, as we read this story and see ourselves in it, God, I pray that you would speak to us. You would open our eyes to see the truth about who you are and then respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis chapter 25, verse 27 and 28. All right, so this is Jacob's upbringing. So it says this, when the boys grew up, remember Jacob's a twin, Esau, his older brother, was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Verse 28, the key verse to understand. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. So right there in that verse, you can understand a little bit of the family dynamic that Jacob grew up in. He grew up with his mama loving him more and his daddy loving his brother more. And his daddy being more performance-minded because he says he loved to eat of Esau's game because Esau was a skillful hunter. I told you last week that he came out hairy. That's what the name Esau means. And so he just came out with fur on. And so I guess that's why he was good at hunting because he just blended in with the animals, right? He just already had the fur on. And so he just, you know, talk about camouflage. He could just camouflage himself. And so his dad loved the fact that Esau could provide for him. So that's kind of a performance-based mentality. And then you got Jacob, whose mom loved him more, and he, she affirmed a lot of things about his personhood, as you're going to see in the story today, that was also dysfunctional. So he grew up in this environment. In fact, both boys grew up in this environment where a lot of unhealthy things were affirmed. And that's really a phrase that I want to capitalize on and look back again at is this, this word here, grew up. I mentioned this a little bit last week, but I really want to dig into it a little bit more because it's so helpful. It's such a, in my mind, a really helpful visual illustration. What's interesting is this word grew up for in Hebrew is the idea of a rope where you have multiple strands coming together to make a rope. And when that is good things, when, when a parent takes, you know, the personality of the child combined with the Holy Spirit and some discipline, those three cords, the Bible says, can come together and be really strong and healthy. And so a, a parent can twist a child and be really healthy. But also a parent can twist a child and be really unhealthy and come out twisted. And yes, I mean that in a bad way. Because if you take the personality of the kid, you take some, you know, a lack of God and you throw in some dysfunction, then those three chords wound together as a twisted kid. And so this idea of growing up is this concept. And this is why I love the visual picture. 
All of us grew up with things twisted around us. And so what God has to do a lot of times, in fact, I would argue, and one of my pastor mentors helped me to understand this, that a lot of discipleship is untwisting what was twisted around you, is unlearning things that you learned. Because a lot of us become like concrete. We're thoroughly mixed up and we're firmly set. All right? We, we, we are mixed up and we're set. And we don't even know that we're mixed up in our setness. We don't even know that we're dysfunctional. And so these boys, again, I love this visual image. They grew up into the dysfunction that they saw. They, they were twisted people. And if we're not careful... In fact, I would argue all of us, to some degree, grow up twisted. So discipleship ultimately is this. It's God having to untangle that. It's God having to unravel that. And the two primary ways that he does that is through his word, the word of God, and through his church, the people of God. So when you got the people of God and the word of God, we would call that now the new family of Jesus. That is when you step into this new family, this new environment, and part of discipleship in the church is God undoing the things that you learned. Now, here's why that's so important. If you grew up in dysfunctional environments and you didn't know that they were dysfunctional and you still show up in church and discipleship is about undoing those things, that can feel real, that can feel real jarring. In fact, a lot of times what happens in church, and I'm not saying this is all the time, I'm not trying to stereotype, but what happens a lot of times in church is the church or the word of God will confront some of your dysfunction and you'll get upset and leave. And that's why a lot of times people leave churches. It wasn't church hurt. It was just they called out something and you didn't like it. And so discipleship, here's why I'm saying this, because if I haven't already upset you at some point in our time together, I probably will. But we need each other, right? Iron sharpens iron. And so if the qualification for staying together in this relationship is we weren't going to upset each other, then it ain't going to work, just like marriage. This is why I tell you all the time and why Jesus himself relates marriage with our relationship with him. The whole point of God putting me into a marriage was not to put me in conflict with my spouse. It was to put me in conflict with myself. That's the point. Because I don't know about you, but I was dysfunctional when I got married. Anybody else? Come on, this is church. You can be honest up in here, all right? Yeah, and guess what? When you became a part of this church, if you're a part of it, you were also dysfunctional. And if you're like thinking about checking out this church, you're like, there's a bunch of dysfunctional people here. Yes, you should feel very welcomed. This is why people are like, church is a bunch of hypocrites. We never said it wasn't. And you should feel very welcome because you're a hypocrite too. Have you ever done something different than what you said you were going to do? Of course you have. You're a human. And so all I'm trying to get you to see is what God was doing with this family is also what he's doing with his family. And discipleship is this. And again, one of my pastor mentors said it, and I love this verse. In fact, where I put my sermon notes in my Bible, where the Bible turns open uh, every time I preach is Jeremiah chapter one. He's in Jeremiah chapter one. God says to Jeremiah, he says, before I formed you, I knew you. And I love that verse. It means a lot to me. And I've shared my story, but I like to say it often because maybe you've never heard it. But I was the youngest of three kids. And when I was born, I was a, a, a surprise. My brother and sister like to call me an accident. 
but I made my mama really sick and she was really frustrated. She was really upset and was having a hard time. And her dad came to her, my grandpa, and said, you just never know what God might do with this child. So it reframed you know, her thinking at that time. And then I was born and I couldn't speak well because I couldn't hear. So then I had to have surgeries to you know, fix that, learn how to speak. Now I'm a preacher. And so I really relate to the story of Jeremiah on a personal level. But there was a part of the story that I didn't relate to until I became a pastor. Now I've been a pastor for over 20 years. And it's Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10. I don't have it on the screen. It's kind of a late addition, if you will. But I want to say it to you. God tells Jeremiah, I have appointed you as a prophet over the nations. And he says, you're going to do six things. You're going to destroy, tear down, overthrow, uproot, build, and plant. And in that verse, as my, one of my, again, my pastor counselor told me, he said, Jason, two-thirds of discipleship is destruction. Two-thirds of discipleship is tearing down. One-third is building up. The reason that's so important is because when you become a part of the family of Jesus, when you become a part of the church, what God is going to do is God is going to have to unravel how you grew up. God is going to have, you're going to have to learn how to unlearn. Like, oh, this is not how we do things in Jesus's family. This is how we did them in my family, but this is not how we do them in Jesus's family. And that's what I'm trying to show you. That's the whole reason why we're doing this series. All right is we want us all to get to a place of emotional healthiness. We want us all to get to a place where we grow up into Christ. Christ-likeness, that's the goal. All right, so now let's go to verse 29. That was a setup. You ready for the sermon? Here's the sermon, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. Esau's his brother, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that Red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, you're like, hold up. Why was his name called Edom? His name was Esau. Well, Edom was like a nickname. And it wasn't a good nickname. And there's a play on words here in Hebrew that we don't understand in English because this stew that his brother is making is, the Bible tells us, is red. Now, the Hebrew word for red is A-D-O-M. And now, in English, we just translated that to Edom. And so a better way to read this is, therefore, his name was called Red. So Esau gets a nickname of Red. Well, first he was named Esau because he was hairy. So imagine this. First his name's Harry. Now his name's Red. Here's my boy Red. And also imagine this. Your nickname is based upon the worst decision you ever made. How do you like that label? So they renamed him. Why? Because his brother is cooking some red stew and he's exhausted. What happens in verse 31? Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, don't miss this. Esau's a hunter. Again, he's hairy. He blends into the animals. He's a skilled man. So he comes in, and I've had this happen before. I've been out hunting. I didn't kill anything. Maybe because I didn't see something, or maybe because you know, it doesn't happen often where I miss something, right? Because I'm Esau. And so this idea of like, he comes in, he's hungry, he's tired. I get it. But here's what we need to know. And this is, again, kind of where I'm going with all of this. We have to be very careful the decisions that we make when we're exhausted. 
It's like going to the grocery store hungry. It's like dating when you're lonely. Mm-hmm. Mm, on that one. Right? We've all done it. Now, they didn't have Publix and, and Kroger back then. They didn't have Uber Eats or DoorDash or Grubhub. They didn't have any of that. So he's out hunting all day. Homeboy is exhausted. He walks in. His brother is making stew. Now, the normal brotherly thing to do when that happens is, hey, I'm hungry, man. I'm exhausted. Give me some stew. But see, Jacob is a deceiver. And he sees it as an opportunity to capitalize on his brother's pain. And here's the point I want to make, and then I'm going to unpack it. We have to be careful of how we categorize things in a crisis. Let me say that again. You might want to write it down. We have to be careful of how we categorize things in a crisis. See, Esau was having a crisis at the moment. Now, he comes in, and when Jacob says, hey, send me your birthright, he goes, what good is a birthright if I'm about to die? That's when we're reading the story, and we're like, hyperbole much? Right? You're like, bro, come on, you're not about to die. I mean, you went a day, maybe two or three days you were out there hunting and you didn't catch anything. You're not about to die. But he's so exhausted and in his mind, that exhaustion has elevated to crisis level that he makes the worst decision he's ever made because of how he categorized things in the crisis. Now, here's why I'm saying this to you. 2020 has been a year of crisis, has it not? Crisis upon crisis, and we're not even to the election yet. And now we have a Supreme Court vacancy. Just wait. We are headed into another crisis. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm a politician or I'm a prophet. I'm just saying that I'm a person who understands the times we're in. And here's why I'm saying it to you. As Christians, we have to be so careful how we categorize things in this crisis. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the midst of all these crises, has rhetoric, rhetoric been wretcheded up? It's gone up like not a notch or two, but like a notch or 20. Everybody on whatever side you're on is talking in such hyperbolic language Whereas this is the worst thing that has ever happened. And what can happen if we're not careful is we start elevating things to this existential level where we're like, oh my gosh, categorically, this is a crisis. And we start making decisions based upon what we perceive reality to be. And here's why I'm saying this to you. And I want you to hear me because as a pastor, my job is to shepherd you. And a lot of times I may only get an hour a week and then you're influenced by media every other day. And I want you to hear me when I say this. There might be a crisis in our house, but there is not a crisis in the kingdom. There might be a crisis in your heart. There might be a crisis in your home. There might be a crisis in our country. But there is not a crisis in the kingdom of God. There's not. You want to know how I know this? Because God is sovereign over all things. 
God did not huddle up the Trinity this morning and be like, oh my gosh, the Supreme Court vacancy. What are we going to do? Now, I'm being dramatic. Are you with me? So if the Trinity didn't do that this morning, then why did so many of God's kids? Because we're miscategorizing things in a crisis. And here's why I can tell you there's not a crisis in the kingdom. Because the greatest crisis of human history has already been solved. See, the greatest crisis in human history is when the Son of God died as an innocent man on the cross. The greatest crisis in the midst of the most oppressive government in human history, the Roman government. In the midst of that. And three days later, Jesus came back from the dead. <laughs> and don't miss this. He ate fish on the beach with his boys. There's not a crisis in the kingdom of God. You want to know why? Because Jesus Christ is on his throne. And he's ruling and reigning over the affairs of men. And since he is ruling and reigning over the affairs of men, we do not have to miscategorize a crisis like Esau and come to this emphatic hyperbolic response. I'm about to die. What use is my integrity? I'm about to die. What, is, what use is my future influence I could have? My birthright. Esau, I mean, we read this story. I mean, think about it. Esau sells his birthright for some red stew. When I moved to Georgia 10 years ago, people were like, if you had Brunswick stew? I'm like, no, I haven't. What is it? They were like, it's stew from Brunswick. All right, where's Brunswick? And it's good, but I ain't selling my birthright for Brunswick. You with me when I say that? Like, I like it, but I'm not going to sell my future blessing, influence, integrity, family security for that. And so you read this story and you're like, Esau, bro, chill. You should do what most normal people do when they're exhausted. Sleep. Rest. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11? Did he say, come to me and I will give you stew? What did he say? I'll give you what? Rest. When the disciples had Jesus in their boat going across the Sea of Galilee, and I've been across the Sea of Galilee, and there wasn't big squalls like they had then, but it was pretty rocky. And Jesus is asleep down in the boat, and they're like, we're freaking out. Wake up, Jesus. Jesus, come fix this. And Jesus is like, man, y'all little faith. Waves, calm down. Who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? You want to know why Jesus can be calm in a storm? Because he controls it. Now, hear what I just told you. Your God controls the crisis. And this is when you're like, well, I don't know if you do this or not, but this is when you're like, well, if he's a loving God, then why did he bring this crisis? Now, I'm not him, so let me give you my best shot. Crisis comes in multiple forms. Sometimes it's a result of our sins. 
Sometimes it's a result of other people's sins, and sometimes it's a result of nobody's sins. I don't know, but here's what I can tell you. The English word crisis comes from a Greek word called crisis, <laughs> for real. Just in Greek, it's spelled with a K. But the Greek word crisis is interesting. You see it in Matthew chapter 11. It translates as the word judgment. In Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the unrepentant cities, and he says, judgment on you, judgment on you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, judgment, judgment. He's saying crisis on you, crisis on you, crisis on you, crisis on you. So sometimes God allows crisis to come as judgment. Sometimes it's Romans 1. All right, you want life without me? Here you go. Is that what's happening in America? I don't know. I'm not a prophet. Could it be? Of course it could be. Could it be God is giving us judgment? Of course. I don't know if he is, but here's what I know. He's doing it or he's allowing it to be done because he wants to change our judgment. He wants to change how we see things. I wholeheartedly believe this is God saying to the church, wake up, wake up. My kingdom is coming. My kingdom is here. Get to work in my kingdom. What if, and this is where I'm the contrarian. What if God brought the crisis of 2020 to show off the compassion of the church? What if that's why he did it? And what if so many in the church are too busy not being careful about how they categorize things in a crisis and are yelling from the rooftops on Facebook and freaking out instead of loving their neighbor as themselves? You see how we can miss it? You see how it's so, I mean, we can sit here and judge Esau, but we do it all the time. And so I honestly believe that the, hmm, that the God of heaven and earth is using this crisis like he uses all crisis to remind us that there is a Christ, that there is a God. And he's trying to change our judgments about who he is and what he's doing. Because look at the kind of person that Jacob was. If you didn't already know, look at verse 34. Then Jacob gave, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. So apparently red stew is full of lentils. I don't know if you've ever had lentils. I've had them in Africa. They're very nutritious, but they don't have a lot of taste. So Esau gave it up for some lentil stew. I guess that's stew from lentil. I don't know. I thought that was funny. I guess it wasn't. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. Now, one of the things I remember learning in middle school, because I had a really good middle school English teacher. And I'm not a, I wasn't a good, I'm still not a great writer. I'd rather say it than write it. Because when I say it, it's just how I say it. You know, I'm not having to be all grammatically correct. But writing something, I, I just never liked. And I'll never forget, she taught us how to write. And one of the things that she taught us was how to start paragraphs, how to start sentences, how to make it cohesive. 
And I'll never forget the if-then statements. So that one, and, and then in addition. And so I would always write from that point forward, like as many if-then statements and in addition statements. To where then she had to come back later, and she's like, I'm so proud of you that you've learned, but that's like you've gone too far with it. If then, if then, everything. But what I remember is this. Then is conditional on the if. If this is true, then this. And so what I want to show you is the type of person that Jacob was. He was a then Jacob kind of person. And what I mean by that is Jacob only gave if a condition was met. And what was the condition? His brother had to give up his birthright. So was Jacob generous in giving his brother stew? Heck no. Jacob was a manipulator. Let me say it to you like this. Jacob was a conditional giver. Then Jacob gave. But let me ask you another question. What kind of giver is God? Is he a conditional giver? No, according to the most popular verse that you probably know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he, what, anybody know? Gave. So his love for the world, or his giving to the world, was only conditioned by his love for it. He didn't wait for the world to do something, and then he loved it. No, God is an unconditional giver, an unconditional lover. Now, this is so important because this jacks up so many people's theologies. But according to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says it like this in response to the type of God he is. He said, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. But God made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So God is not a then God kind of God. He's a but God kind of God. So Jacob is conditional. God is unconditional. Why am I stressing this? Because what kind of people does God want to multiply? Jacob's or Jesus's? What? If you've been to Sunday school, you know the answer. The answer is always Jesus. But see, Jacob isn't that kind of dude. See, not only did Esau mischaracterize the crisis, but so did Jacob. Jacob saw the crisis as an opportunity to get ahead. Jacob saw the crisis as an opportunity to get. See, there's going to be people that come out of this crisis better. Not better emotionally or mentally or spiritually. I'm talking better in the, in the sense of their position in the world. And we almost always define that monetarily. There's going to be people that come out of this crisis richer. I'm not saying that's a sin, but what I'm saying is this, and I want you to hear me. If that is our primary motivation, it can be sinful. You see, Jacob should have loved his brother. When he saw Esau coming in from the field exhausted, he should have served his brother. He should have, he should have been like, bro, sit down right here. Do I have some stew for you? 
President ain't got nothing on me, baby. But he didn't do that. And this is why I was saying, what if God brought the crisis of 2020 to reveal what type of Christians we are? Are we Jacob-type Christians or are we Jesus-type Christians? Because here's what I know about a crisis. It'll reveal who you are. When you get squeezed, whatever comes out, that's who you are. And so in this moment, this is why from the very beginning, we as a church have been trying to make sure we all positioned ourselves individually and corporately to not miss the moment of this crisis, to live on mission in this crisis, to help everybody we can help in this crisis. Let me say it to you like this, to not hoard toilet paper. Now, I bought toilet paper. I ain't going to lie. Although I was ready with the water hose. I was fine. My wife said that was disgusting. I'm like, hey, rich people pay a lot of money for bidets. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? What, what is the natural human instinct in crisis? Hoard. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we can't take care of our families. Of course we can. But we're called to love our neighbor. And Jacob was the kind of dude that capitalized off of somebody else's pain instead of trying to catalyze that into him knowing Christ. You with me when I say that? So coming out of this crisis, what I want us to be is the type of people where, where we now see the lens of this crisis. We don't miscategorize it. We understand God's in control. And we wake up tomorrow thinking, okay, if I knew that God was in control, then what would I do? If I knew that, if I believed that, then how would I live? See, the definition of crisis, and this is interesting. You can go read it on dictionary.com. It's where I got it from. The word crisis can mean this, a dramatic emotional or circumstantial upheaval in a person's life. Well, that's happened in 2020, hasn't it? But check out this definition. A stage in a sequence of events at which the trend, now listen to this, of all future events, for better or worse, is determined. A turning point. So this year may have been a dramatic emotional and circumstantial upheaval in, in your life. But God wants to use it at, from this point forward, all future events come out better. He wants this to be a turning point, and that is the story of the cross. And so church, hear me. And again, this is what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't engage civically. I'm not saying don't vote politically. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying to you is this, calm down and trust Christ and love your neighbor. That's what we're called to do. But look at what Jacob does. He goes further. You can fast forward now to Genesis chapter 27, verse 34 and 38. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me, also my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Now, this is a separate event. See, Jacob took his birthright and now Jacob took his blessing. I'll explain to you in just a second what that is. But this time he deceives his father. And here's what's crazy. At the help of his mama. 
his mama affirmed the deceit in him. And she said, and he goes, my brother's hairy. I'm smooth. I don't know if he said it like that, but that's how I envision it. All right. She's like, here, put on this coat, this fur. So he walks in and he goes, well, I hear Jacob's voice, but I feel Esau's hair. And so his father blesses him. And then Esau shows back up from the field with the meal prepared and the blessings gone. And Esau responds like this, verse 36. Esau said, is this, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these how many times? Let's try that again. If you're new, I like for you to call and respond. So I know you're alive out there. For he has cheated me these what? Two times. Remember the two-ness in Jacob's life, the duplicity, the doubleness? Two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Verse 37, Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine, I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Now, a little bit of context here. This is hard for us to understand in our modern kind of American kind of idea about how wills work and how inheritances work. Because if, if a husband dies or a wife dies, then that money typically goes to the spouse. And then from there, then it'll kind of be evenly distributed amongst the kids. Again, that's not always how it happens. You can make it up yourself, right? But that's kind of the common thought. But back then it wasn't. And so when the father died, all the blessings of the father, everything went to the oldest son. Now, that sounds weird to us, but it wasn't meant to be chauvinistic or like male dominated. The point of it was, is they had big families. They didn't have banks. They didn't have insurance. They didn't have any of that. So their security was wrapped up in their family. So if they divided it amongst 12 kids or 14 kids or however many kids they have, each one of those little families wouldn't have enough to survive. And so it was better to keep it all together and then trust the oldest brother, the oldest son to then now care for the family. So it wasn't like the oldest brother or the oldest son got everything and then everybody else got nothing. No, that wasn't the point. It was he got everything and he now got every wealth that the father had, and now he had the responsibility of the father to care for the family. So it was a passing on of responsibility, not just wealth. And so when he blesses Jacob instead of Esau, it's done. It was legal. It was final. You couldn't undo it. That's why he says, listen, what can I do for you? Why? Because now all the father's wealth is wrapped up in the son. He had just gave, given everything that he had to his most deceitful son, which is why verse 38, it says, Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father, bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now, here's why this is so important. I want to close with it. You want to know why Jesus, and I think it was Jesus, shows up in Genesis chapter 32 14 years after this event and wrestles Jacob because Jacob can't handle the responsibility and wealth of his father. He can't handle the blessing of his father. And here's why I'm saying this to you. You and I can't handle the blessing of the father either until Jesus wrestles us down. Because what was Jesus doing when he showed up in Genesis chapter 32, 
Why did he wrestle Jacob? You want to know why I think it, it did? It, again, it goes back to cultural explanations. Jesus was saying to Jacob, you may have tricked your older brother, but you didn't trick your true older brother. You may have tricked your father's son, but you didn't trick me. I'm my father's son. Jesus shows up on the road with Jacob and wrestles him down and says, listen, boy, there's a bigger, badder brother, and it's me. See, this is the same kind of thing that Jesus was getting at in Luke chapter 15. In fact, if you go to your Bible right now, you can look at it later. The headings in your Bible, those weren't written by the original authors. Matthew or Luke didn't write that. Those were translators who wrote it. And this is why the numbers in your Bible, the chapters in your Bible, those aren't inspired. Those are just added to make us help us know. And the segment of Luke chapter 15, and this just annoys me. It's a pastoral pet peeve of this segment because it's wrong. It says the story or the parable of the prodigal son. Here's why it's, when I say wrong, don't hear what I'm not, I'm not saying the Bible's wrong. I'm saying the heading's wrong. Because it's not a story about one son. Because you read the first verse and it says, a man had, anybody know? Two sons. See a theme? One son came to his father, if you know the story, he says, give me all your inheritance. And he went and squandered it, living in pigs. And the older son, the older brother, When the younger son came back, saw the father run and bless the brother, kill the fattened calf. Why did the older brother in that story get so mad? Because all the wealth that the father used to bless his younger brother was his. The father took what the son rightfully owned. And the reason why Jesus told the story, and it was a story, it's not a true story, Jesus made it up. But it doesn't mean it's not true because he's Jesus. But if you read back at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, there's two kind of people that are hanging around Jesus. Sinners and Pharisees. Let me say it to you like this. What we would categorize good people, bad people. And Jesus tells this story and it's shocking because the bad one ends up on the outside, uh, on the inside, while the good one ends up on the outside. And if you would have heard that story, you would have been like, no way. Why does Jesus tell the story? Because Jesus was proving a point that the Pharisees, the Jewish people, the religious people had failed in being real older brothers because they weren't taking care of the people who were far from God like they too were far from God. So Jesus shows up in Luke 15 the same way he shows up in Genesis 32. And he says, listen, there's a real brother on the scene now. And this real older brother, this is what Paul's getting into in Romans chapter eight. He says, listen, all the wealth of the father is in this older brother, the son of God. And this older brother is not going to use this wealth and this riches and this blessing on himself. In fact, he is going to give it to all the other sons and daughters of God that God wants back. 
And so why did Jesus show up in Genesis 32? We'll get to this in a few weeks and wrestle Jacob to show Jacob that Jacob couldn't handle the blessing without a relationship with the real older brother. And neither can you, church. And so the way that we miscategorize things in a crisis can be twofold. We can elevate it to the point of where we're like, oh my gosh, if this happens, we're going to die. How many times have you heard that this week? And the second thing that you'll do in a crisis is you won't be an older brother Jesus type who takes the blessings of the father and says, it's my privilege to give it to God's kids who he wants back. Let me say it to you like this. What if God this year decides to save somebody that you hate politically? (laughs) What if somebody on the other side of the aisle politically ends up in heaven and the one on the same side of you doesn't? Because that's the story of Luke 15. So so church, listen to me. What I'm saying is this. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't engage. I'm not saying any of that. But what I'm saying is live like you're citizens of another kingdom. And that God's got this. He's in control. Does God want to bless America? Yes, he does. But he wants to bless the whole rest of the earth too. But when he blesses, he wants us to use those to bless others. We don't want to multiply then Jacob kind of people. We want to multiply but God kind of people. And that's why God is wrestling with you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not miscategorize this crisis. Oh, it's a crisis. And it's unnerving and it's emotional and it's upheaval and it's scary. But help us to realize, God, that you've been around before America. You've been around before Rome. You've been around before the world. And the old kid song is true. You got the whole world in your hands. And so God, we can stay calm. We can trust you. We don't have to trade in our future integrity and influence that we could have had because we mischaracterized a crisis. But God, I know there are people here that the crisis this year has led them to a point of exhaustion where they are reaching and searching for anything or anyone to save them. And God, for that, we say thank you. And we right now ask you to reach out through the power of your Holy Spirit and the preaching of your word and grab them in Christ and save them. No one looking around or talking here as we close, but if you've never trusted Christ and this crisis has led you to Christ, 
then what was the worst thing can now become the best thing because now you can have the faith, hope, and joy that we have knowing that God is working all things together for our good. If you're in relationship with the real older brother, which is Jesus. So if that's you, if you want to trust Christ right there where you are, you can pray with me. You don't have to say it out loud and it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son, Jesus, in my place. My true older brother who gave his life for me. I ask you to take my sin. Forgive me. Give me life. I am trusting in Christ alone. Thank you for loving me. Now, again, nobody looking around or talking. If you just prayed that with me for the first time and you're in the house, you can just lift your hand up because we have a gift we want to give you. Thank you. And men and women are going to walk around and put that in your hand. And when they do, you can put it down. If you're watching online or even if you're in one of our gatherings in just a moment, you'll have an opportunity to text us your information so we'll know who you are. But then those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, Please, as a shepherd who is tasked with shepherding you, I want you to hear me. Move forward with confidence tomorrow that God is in control. And have compassion on whoever God puts in front of you. Worry less about trying to be right. And worry more about trying to be loving. Because winning an argument has never led anyone to Christ. But loving them has. Maybe you're getting in arguments with people that God put in your path and you can't see it correctly yet. Because he wants you to love them into his kingdom. Not convince them of an earthly one. Father, I pray that you'd mobilize your church to live on mission. This is our moment, God. This is our moment to step into the crisis with the power and authority of the name of Christ and bring hope. Because we need it. And God, we ask you to give us the grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you.